Hi, I'm Shona. And I'm Craig. And this is London by Lockdown, a travel podcast about falling in love with the new city in strange times, remaining curious and open, enjoying everyday discoveries and making it work. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout the continent of Australia and Torres Strait Islands and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. We'd like to advise First Nations listeners that this episode includes the names of First Nations people who are deceased and references traumatic events. On that rock is where the British first landed on our shores. Shot my ancestor, took my ancestor's shield, took all their spears. That was the day our lives changed forever. Invasion day is like big sorry day. It's disappointment day, really. Frankly, it's a day I dread. I wake up on invasion day and I just feel so depressed. It's an overwhelming feeling and it hangs, it hangs. It goes way back to invasion when the protection board was set up and Aboriginal people were moved off their cultural land and put onto missions and children were taken to assimilate. That mentality has never ever changed within the government system. I, Burnham Burnham, being an aristocratic nobleman of ancient Australia, do hereby take possession of England on behalf of the Aboriginal Crown. In doing so, we wish no harm to you natives. We give an absolute undertaking that you shall not be placed into the mentality of government handouts for the next five generations, but you will enjoy the full benefits of Aboriginal equality. Today we're bringing you a really powerful episode all about Aboriginal resistance and activism in London and England. And we are so deeply honoured to have had so much help putting this together. The show features an array of First Nations voices, which is also why it's a tad longer than we would usually do. There's a lot of truth-telling in this episode, so it does get heavy, but we think it's really important for everyone to hear these stories We know that events in London were a key driver of the ongoing colonial invasions and occupations in many different places across the world. Before invasion, the Australian continent and its islands literally housed hundreds of nations. And those nations are continuing to exert and defend their sovereignty. As we come into January 26, it's important to remember that for those nations, it's a day of mourning, a day of survival, invasion day, and Sovereign Day. That date has such significance because every year Colonial Australia has a national holiday, which is basically a party to celebrate that first colony and its occupation of the nations it invaded, which is obviously problematic whatever date you pick. As non-Indigenous people, we know that some of the most useful things we can do at this time of year is to stop, listen and learn. Today's show is all about that. First Nations people will talk us through some of the activism that has taken place in or around London and England, both in the past and today. They will also help to orient us away from the colonial fiction about Australia to a more accurate understanding of the reality. In honour of that truth-telling, the title of today's show comes from a speech by Rodney Kelly, 
about his ancestors' first contact with James Cook on Sunday, April 29, 1770. Welcome to episode 12, the day our lives changed forever. As we were thinking about how to pull the show together, we immediately thought of a couple of our friends back home at 4ZZZ. The Soldier Sisters, Michelle and Tabitha, who present a one-hour radio show every Saturday that looks at women of colour and explores their music, lives and political activism. We asked them for a five-minute introduction and they were so generous, they just ended up talking with us for hours upon hours. You'll hear from them throughout the show because they just covered so much territory. My language, in spite of whiteness trying to penetrate into my brain by assimilationists, I am alive. It is the oppressor who by his brutal methods caused the people to resist. you what freedom is to me no fear i mean really no fear blackness that black power that black pushing them to identify with uh, black culture i am here and now and i speak my language the black panthers still exist and the black panthers are still extremely active Yama, Yamanindai, Naya, Michelle, Dijinbawa, Naya, Gamilaroi, Yina. Hello and welcome. I'm Michelle, soldier sister and Gamilaroi uh, woman. Gamilaroi, my name is Tabitha Saunders. I am a descendant of the Langabara, Bachala and Bidjara tribe. My ancestral homes are Gurri. English name is Fraser Island. And Bidjara country is central Queensland, big mob out there. I am also a mother of three and I'd like to say hello to everybody. Being connected to country for me means sort of taking the time to learn your language, the plants, the stories and the ceremony, to be quiet there and listen to everything. Listening to creeks and the birds, it's a space where I listen and digest. Country is a place where you belong, where you feel it in your blood, you feel it in your heart, you feel it in your spirit. You can feel your ancestry talking and singing to you and connecting with you and trying to connect with you in order to care for your country. You are a carer for that country. That is your responsibility. Yeah, I think the fundamental difference with an Aboriginal perspective on country and belonging is our belonging is linked to stories of the creation of this place. Whereas the other concept of country based around nation state and those like Australia Day, that story of belonging here is attached to the story of how they arrived here. Whereas Mm -hmm. our story about belonging is about coming from here. From this place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
and the we and, are created in the dream time michelle we were we yeah. come from the dream time that's how we were created before we came into being we were all these un, it was all this unconnected energy and then the dreaming it was created into us they came together yeah absolutely and that gets really confusing as well for people because they think it's this surreal space. The word dreaming, I like it in that, like the way we understand our place and creation is much more gentle and much more a recognition of interdependence and collaboration. Hello, I'm Ronnie Kelly from down the south coast on uh, Yuan country. In 1770, Lieutenant James Cook sailed up the east coast of Australia and chose Botany Bay as a place to come ashore at Cornell. On that day, people like Joseph Banks accompanied him, as well as many Marines. There was two Aboriginal warriors that stood there and they were trying to warn them off. Cook fires shots, some spears were thrown, and in the end, uh, shield and spears were taken from my people that day. The shield now is in the British Museum in London. Uh, well, I first heard about the shield when it came over here on exhibition. I was on display at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. At that time, yeah, I was looking into you know, a lot of family history and stuff. You know, knowing the history behind it, it was such a good, good feeling to be able to see it in person. Yeah, decided to try and do something about having them return back home so other people can learn that history and have that same feeling. The story they tell is a big story. It tells a story of the arrival of Europeans and Cookanese journey, so it tells a story of how life was before Cook arrived. It also tells the story of resistance. That shield is to us a symbol of our resistance. Yes, yeah, so I was very special. Always think of my ancestors and, and, you know, they haven't got a voice, so if I can be their voice, it makes me proud to be able to do that. I've been going over there in London for the past few years, doing many lectures, just talking to as many people as I can. I've done tours at the British Museum where myself, people from other countries, they come and speak about their items that the British Museum have that should be returned to their countries, bring more voices together. British Museum is bound by law. They've got the Act of Parliament that prohibits them from letting anything go. And basically, they don't want to let anything go because there's so much stuff there that other cultures are starting to ask for. And just try and let them know the reasons why an item like the Gweagle Shield should be returned home. General public has been fantastic. Across the board, there's just so much support for returning items from the British Museum and other museums that look up to the British Museum, as in, you know, we're not going to give items back, we'll loan 
items but won't actually repatriate. A big part of what Aboriginal people want is truth-telling and true history to be told in Australia. Australia is a very racist place and for Aboriginal people we've never had much rights since the British arrived. So having the legal shield and the legal spears returned would be able to open up all that history, open up a new world for people. They could come and learn that a man was shot that day. Our people had everything stolen. Having these items right in front of them would bring that power into that history. Having lots of school children groups, high school kids, you know, learning what happened from the beginning. This new generation coming up now, maybe Australia could be a better place for Aboriginal people and we don't have to put up with racial abuse on a daily basis. And we can make Australia a better place, not only for, for my people, but all races. I see these artefacts as a tool to bring about change and bring about the telling of true history. All these cultures around the world that are trying to have our sacred items returned, that's a simple yes or no. In the end, we'll get our stuff returned and start to heal. It's the right thing to do. Brodney Kelly's petition to the British Museum to return his ancestors' belongings is ongoing. Stay up to date with his campaign on Twitter at RodKelly77. In the next bit of audio, you'll hear Michelle mention something called native title. So just a quick explanation of that. In 1992, there was a High Court case that proved that the idea that Australia was terra nullius, empty land, and so could be colonised, was complete and utter fiction, even under British law. In response to that, the Australian government then wrote a law called Native Title, which was meant to create a structure to recognise First Nations people's land rights. So the problem with that is that the law still sits within the Australian colonial legal system, so it gives itself the power to decide what rights it thinks are valid or not. This means that the same law that can recognise land rights can also extinguish those rights, supposedly, on the pretext that people forcibly taken off their land no longer have a legitimate claim to it. Ganama, Mother Earth, it's a relationship that's not built on being able to exploit her resources, but actually understanding that I have custodianship responsibilities there and I have responsibilities to self and family and community. For me, connecting to country is to develop much deeper understandings through a process of experiential learning about myself and about my purpose and my responsibilities, which is about knowing an interdependent relationship on one another and on land. It's like a meditative space. And sometimes it's not easy on country either. The few days that I had with family, obviously black politics came up, stuff going on in the community and with things like native title and mines going in. Oh, look, it's mixed. It's a really mixed. I cry when I hit country. I get emotional thinking about it, but I cry. I, as soon as my feet hit sand on the island, I cry. Because 
There was a massacre on the island as well. There's a place called Indian Head where my people were massacred. So my countrymen, my ancestors, after being hunted down, shot, dispossessed, they headed to the mainland looking for food. They stole a couple of sheep. A massive search party came out after them, hunted them all down. After they'd massacred the men on the mainland, they herded up all the women and the children on Indian Head and told them, if they don't jump, we'll shoot you. So being on country, as soon as I stand on country, I feel the pain, I feel the sorrow and country speaks to you, you know, it does. If, you, if you're listening hard enough, being on country is so important to me. And, and look, being dispossessed from country is it's like being divorced from your parents. It's hard. It's really hard. What I do before I go on country is I stand on Inskip Point, which is on the mainland. Before we go across, I stand and I sing to the country and I talk to the ancestors and I ask their permission and let them know that I want to bring my family and my friends. They send me a sign. They send me a sign. If you feel a cool breeze and it's a strong cold breeze that's your ancestors singing to you saying you are right to pass that's how you respect country you wait to be accepted you don't just force your way in going back to Indian head as they call it I'm not sure what the traditional name is so I was there with a bunch of fishing mates and they all went around onto the headland to to fish. And this was the first time I visited my country. I couldn't walk on that rock. I sat on the beach and I cried and I cried and I cried and I didn't. That was before I even knew there was this monstrous massacre of women and children off the end of that headland. When I did find out, I was like, well, that all, you know, the penny drops. I know that so many issues, but I'm disconnected from country. So I, yeah, when I do feel country, it's very powerful and it surges through me. I know that's my granny and my granny's all talking to me through country. So yeah, when I do visit, get a chance to visit country, it's really super powerful because it doesn't happen often. I miss it. My name is Hazel Collins and I'm normally addressed as Annie Hazel when I do interviews and so forth. I founded Grandmothers Against Removals back in 2014. It started out as the result of my grandchildren being removed from their mum. I always knew about stolen generation and children being removed by the department. But until my babies were taken, I really didn't realise the extent that it was occurring. The idea behind it was 
to empower Aboriginal people to stand up and expose the activities of the department and highlight how many children are out there not with family. And when they remove children, they don't just remove them from parents, they remove them from whole of family and community. So that's very, very traumatic, very, very hard for us as adults, exceptionally hard for the children and causes lifelong problems. It's almost 10 times more than non-Indigenous children being removed. Even as we speak, there's many, many thousands of Aboriginal children still being removed from their families and it's just very, very hard to understand how this is continuing to happen. As a matter of fact, it's gone beyond the numbers ever recorded in history. It goes way back to invasion when the protection board was set up and Aboriginal people were moved off their cultural lands and put onto missions and children were taken to assimilate. That mentality has never, ever changed within the government system. All their policies and procedures, the legislations, are all still governed on that. It's flawed. My own daughter fought for seven years to get her children back. Certainly when they go under the minister, they go under the minister till they're 18. We as adults have an 18-year sentence, and certainly our children do. It's very, very traumatic. It's something that never, ever goes away. We carry that pain and suffering to the day we die. There is a process, a court process, that is a Section 90, and that is the only chance that parents do have to get their children back. But then they've got to fight the department. It's not very often that that process is successful. We do grow up different. I grew up on a mission where we didn't just belong to mum and dad, we belonged to everybody. And it was a very sharing and nurturing environment. My mum never ever drank, but if we had auntie up the road that was drinking, well, their kids would come down to home. So they were always safe. We parent as a community. This is something that we try to explain to the department all we're asking of them is to acknowledge that we parent in a different way. It doesn't mean it's wrong. I got a phone call last year, early February, from a mum and her two boys were with English carers. She got notified the day before they were due to fly out to England for six months. Because these children are under the minister, she doesn't have any say in the matter. I got on the phone and made quite a lot of phone calls. It was very difficult to stop them getting on that plane, but we managed to do that. Now, these English foster carers, they were only in Australia on working visas. They didn't have dual citizenship or anything like that. So it opens up a whole can of worms as to, well, how could they have been accredited by the department. The male carer went back to England and he refused to come back. So the female carer wanted to take the children to England. But I think I may be wrong with the month. About September last year, the Minister Gareth Ward did sign off on these children being able to go to England with the carers. On the 
basis that they were to return to Australia in October last year. It was only meant to be for a very short stay. Now these children are still in England. The foster carers are refusing to come back to Australia. We're having a lot of discussion, and I'll put that very mildly, with the department. Gareth Ward will not speak to us. His comment was that he does not discuss individual cases. Mum is very distraught. The department is saying they have a bond with these carers, and the children want to stay with English carers. But what the department is not acknowledging is they created the breakdown of the bond with mum. Her problem is, and it's very hard for us to try and keep her strong and focused. I mean, really, what has she got to wake up to every day? The loss of her boys. What if she never gets to see her sons again in her lifetime? My understanding is one of the boys is a diabetic and he's actually had an operation in England. I want to know who authorised that operation. I've been a carer through the department. I could not even go and get from my own biological grandchildren, get their tooth taken out by a dentist without the permission of the department. I couldn't enrol them in school. The department had to do it. So how did this young boy have this operation in England? Their First Nation children how it stands at this present time is the Department have extended their stay over there for another six months whilst they're trying to convince these carers to come back. Now, my concern is they're not registered as carers in England. They're not in Australia. They do not have a working visa in Australia. Why aren't the Australian government going over there and getting these children and bringing them home? If I was in this situation and they were my children and I got on that plane and went over and got them, I would be charged with abduction. The department has done this here in Australia with parents, charged them with abducting their own children. These children have family here in Australia that they're not going to see. Nobody has the right to do that in my eyes. These children are not going to grow up as Aboriginal children. They have pride in who they are. They think mum doesn't want them. One day their mother is going to be their ancestral footprint and they're not going to know. Mum's not getting anywhere with the department. It's not a system where you can continue to go back and back and back. You get one chance but she did fight very, very hard to stop her son from leaving Australia. We would never consider walking into someone else's home and removing their children because we know the trauma that comes with that. The government constantly asks, so what is the answer? My response to that is, we are. It's time for the government to sit down with us and together we can build a new system and rewrite the book. It's no longer acceptable for them as non-Indigenous people to make decisions about what's best for us as First Nation people. The Grandmothers Against Removals are also raising money for legal costs to try and bring the boys back. You can find the GoFundMe link in our show notes. Invasion Day is like 
big sorry day. It's disappointment day, really. Every year as this day kind of approaches, oh, there's this just this big grief churning in my stomach, seeing flags and thongs in $2 shops and all the hype on the news. Frankly, it's a day I dread every year. Look, uh, just look, I wake up on Invasion Day and I just feel so depressed, I guess. I, it's an overwhelming feeling and it hangs, it hangs. It's just an overwhelming sadness, to be honest. I feel very emotional on that morning and full of dread. It's knowing on that day, in the very core of myself, in my heart, that I'm here because they didn't kill my ancestors. But I know that they were hell-bent on killing as many of us as they could. And some of their descendants still want to kill us now. And many have contempt for my values, celebrating when I and everyone else that's Aboriginal on this continent have made it so very clear that this day is a bitter day for us. You feel really disrespected and violated. You go to the rally, it's great to be with a huge mob of blackfellas, but why you're there is not a nice reason to be there, saying, I want to be recognised and I want the truth to be told about what went on here and this is not a day of celebration for us. It's a shattering day. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. You, you can't express how deeply you feel about it. No one's going to understand unless you're an Indigenous person. Being in a colonised country, and you think about your ancestors, like, you know, my ancestors are all beautiful people and did amazing stuff in their lifetimes. My grannies, my grand great-grannies, and they were amazing people, and where's their recognition? They don't get recognition. No, it's all about waving a flag. That's the other thing. It's important to go to the rally. I dread it. I really dread it. But there's no way that I wouldn't be there making a statement about how appalling I think it is that it continues to be celebrated. And what it's doing is it's silencing the truth. Every time I see an Australian flag, I feel this. I feel this on country where basically the settler narrative is totally dominant with the names of our highways, with the names of the towns, with the celebration of the conquest of this land. Nudakara, my name is Lara. I'm a proud Gajala Kabobo woman from North Queensland in Australia. I was born and raised on Gubby Gubby country, and I live and work on Turrbal in Yuggera country. The Burnham Burnham Declaration. On the 26th of January, 1988, to coincide with the bicentenary of the arrival of the first fleet in 1788, on the banks of what is now known as Cornell, Sydney, and what was the founding of the colony of New South Wales, Burnham Burnham, 
placed an Aboriginal flag on the white cliffs of Dover, British soil, and made this declaration. I, Burnham Burnham, being an aristocratic nobleman of ancient Australia, do hereby take possession of England on behalf of the Aboriginal crown. In doing so, we wish no harm to you natives, but assure you that we are here to bring you good manners, refinement, and an opportunity to make a kumpatu, a fresh start. Henceforth, my face shall appear on your coins and stamps to signify our sovereignty over this domain. At the end of 200 years, we will make a treaty to validate occupation by peaceful means and not by conquest. For the more advanced, we bring the complex language of the Pitanjara. We will teach you how to have a spiritual relationship with the earth and show you how to get food from the bush. We do not intend to souvenir, pickle, and preserve the heads of 2,000 of your people, nor to publicly display the skeletal remains of your royal highness, as was done to our Queen Truganini for 80 years. Neither do we intend to poison your water holes, lace your bread with strychnine, or introduce you to highly toxic drugs. We acknowledge the need to preserve the Caucasian race as of interest to antiquity, although we may be inclined to conduct experiments by measuring the size of your skulls for levels of intelligence. We pledge not to sterilize your young women. We solemnly promise not to make a quarry of England and export your valuable minerals back to the old country, Australia, but to encourage earth repair action to unite people, communities and religions in a common, productive, peaceful purpose. Finally, we give an absolute undertaking that you shall not be placed into the mentality of government handouts for the next five generations, but you will enjoy the full benefits of Aboriginal equality. That declaration is amazing. And Lara just read that perfectly. Lara also has a fantastic YouTube channel. Caramel Latte. Which is dedicated to sharing First Nations voices. It's a really welcoming, accessible space if you're just sort of starting to learn about this. Another really important First Nations activist who was operating in and around London is Anthony Martins Fernando. We're not 100% sure we can do him justice here because people are still piecing together his story. So we're also including a link to an amazing radio documentary about him. He left Australia in the 1800s because as a black man, he was prevented from giving court evidence against white men who had murdered First Nations people. He made his way over here and ended up living in London and Europe from about 1890 until his death in 1946 in Ilford. What really struck me is just his absolute clarity in calling out what was happening in Australia. He was really this lone activist trying to use whatever means he could to call out the genocide. And one of, I think, the most iconic moments was he was selling toys, which were these tiny toy skeletons. And what he chose to do was stand outside Australia House in London and he pinned all the skeletons to his jacket and he'd call out 
do you see these skeletons? This is all Australia has left of my people. We also have court records where he'd call out the racism against him in London as well. He would just speak in such an incredibly incisive and powerful way. And another action before the 1999 referendum on whether Australia should become a republic. Spoiler alert, we didn't. A group of First Nations leaders travelled to London to meet with the Queen. I really don't have much of this story, but from what I could find online, this was in response to this really rising white supremacist movement that was using this debate to say that if we are a monarchy, we're a white nation, basically. So the meeting was, among other things, an attempt to show that the monarchy acknowledged First Nations people as citizens. So that's interesting to reflect on today, because only about 20 years later, what we've got is a pretty mainstream position from a lot of prominent First Nations activists calling for recognition of First Nations sovereignty. And I can't actually imagine <laughs> people needing or wanting to go to the Queen or appeal to the Queen. They're fine. I, yeah, I can't really <laughs> yeah. say that. As part of that discussion about sovereignty, the learning journey that non-Indigenous people have been on is really rewriting the picture that we have of what happened. Armed men showing up at someone else's borders and just ignoring the pre-existing legal systems, the justice system, the schools of science, pedagogy, diplomacy, agriculture, philosophy, spiritual beliefs, everything. And these invaders just making up and inventing their own country, that's completely reliant on this incredible brutality to enforce that. And that's ongoing today. And those nations that pre-existed colonial invasion are tens of thousands of years old. If you want to put a date on that, 65,000 years, 80,000 years, it's so abstract, you can't even compute it. And to put that into perspective, Stonehenge is only 5,000 years old. No offence to Stonehenge. <laughs> now, I'm not entirely sure what a future that respects Indigenous sovereignty means for someone from the invader culture, but it's got to be better than invasion, war, ecocide and genocide. As a non-Indigenous person, it feels like I've been denied the basic tools of what it means to live in a peaceful society. So unravelling the colonial mess is important for us to liberate ourselves from our own violence. As far as we know, the first people from the Australian continent to visit London were Benelong and Yamirawane. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that name incorrectly. Both Wangal men of the Aora Nation. And that nation is in the area the colonialists named Sydney. And Benelong is a really important figure in the history of that first invasion. We don't know as much about him as we should, so we may not have got all this right. In the early days of the occupation, Benelong was kidnapped as part of what the English termed efforts to build relationships with locals. <laughs> yeah. Solid strategy there. <laughs> Vague and a mouthful. For a few months, he lived in what I guess was the colonial camp and he learned English. He's someone who's been depicted very differently over the years. And I think today he's increasingly understood as being part of the earliest diplomatic efforts of the First Nations resistance. A couple of years after the invasion began, Benelong and Yamirawane travelled to London. Despite it being such a long and dangerous journey to get there, the king didn't even meet with them. Even by colonial standards. That was incredibly insulting. During their time in London, they did build relationships with some people. They both got ill. Yamirawane died and was buried in the Eltham Cemetery. We know where the headstone is, but people don't know precisely where his body is. So he hasn't yet been repatriated and taken home. 
that is only about 90 minutes walk east of where we are now. In the end, Benelong was away for about three years. And when he got home, from what we know, he returned to his own people and after that experience, cut all ties with the invaders. The reason we're telling this story is that we are very honoured to have permission to share an extremely important cultural and historical piece of music, which was last performed in London by Benelong and Yamirawane in 1793. Because of invasion, that song was lost for a time, but it has been recovered and revived in the last 15 years in Australia. A written notation of that song was found in the British Museum by Australian historian Keith Vincent Smith. The piece was arranged by Kevin Hunt from the Conservatory of Music in Sydney, and it is performed by First Nations musicians Matthew Doyle and Clarence Lockie. We hope that you'll be as moved by this music as we are. Thank you to everyone who helped us in putting together the show today, to the Koori Heritage Trust, to the brilliant soldier sisters, Michelle and Tabitha, Rodney Kelly, Lara Matthew Doyle and Clarence Slocky, Arnie Hazel and the Grandmothers Against Removals, Sovereign Union and Kim Stewart and Only Human at 4ZZZ. In prepping the show, we literally had hours of interviews and recordings that we just couldn't fit in. So we really encourage everyone to follow the folks featured here today on whatever platform you can find them on. We're going to put a whole heap of links in the show notes, including Rodney's Twitter, the Grandmothers Against Removals website and a GoFundMe page, Lara's awesome YouTube channel, Caramel Latte, 
the Brilliant Soldier Sisters weekly show and the Sovereign Union website where you can find that incredible song. Thanks to Registered Master Builder and the Free Music Archive for our music. We hope you're all staying safe, being kind and looking after yourself, whatever that means for you. Take care and join us for our next adventure.